And we're live with our 157th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey everybody, welcome back to another year of or another year of Absolute AppSec, but another year of pandemic or endemic or whatever you want to call it now. Um, I'm super excited to be back though. We've uh, we took a few weeks off. And it does feel like a while since Ken and I caught up and we interacted with the community, right? I was starting to feel a little bit isolated, so happy to be back at it. There's quite a bit for us to cover today. There's all sorts of stuff that's happened in the last three weeks, four weeks. Um, I mean, I think we, we we beat the log for hell or log for J stuff to, to death before we right before we left for the break. Um, and we still haven't done our After Dark episode volume two Um, but uh other than that uh we do still have um kernel con on the calendar uh we'll be teaching there they've been tweeting out about it um our course secure code review practical secure code review seth and ken's excellent adventure whatever you want to call it uh we will be teaching how to do how to perform secure code reviews at kernel con um hopefully in person, since that's what we're planning on, Um, end of March. Outside of that, um, I don't necessarily have anything else on the calendar. I know um, we're big proponents of CactusCon down in uh, Phoenix. Phoenix. Yeah, we've been to that multiple times. I don't, uh, I know they're doing, it's February 4th and 5th. Sadly, I can't make it this year. Um, It's right over, you know, family stuff that I've got. I'll post it up there too. Oh, wrong place. <clears throat> so this is in February? Yeah, it's February 4th and 5th. And they're running a hybrid at CactusCon as well. Uh, I think they're going to have some people on site. I know they're not doing trainings on site. Those are all be virtual. That was one of the reasons we decided we weren't going to do the trainings. We're tired of virtual trainings, but that's just our personal preference. Um, the, but, uh, yeah, Andrew's running that. I know he's been chatting about it in different channels, trying to decide how to keep people safe and how how to keep people happy, which is definitely not an easy thing, right? Everybody's got their own opinion on and their own risk profile as they should. So, um, I, um, I actually might try to fly down for that. I'm looking at, I'm literally like looking at tickets right now. Um, really? down yeah at this point i just i'm like ready to travel again so i'm just mm-hmm. uh looking at tickets now so maybe i'll uh, go down there because i have fa- yeah, as you know i have family down there too and uh i think they're um yeah it's been a while so i'm gonna i'm gonna look at uh tickets see if i can make it out there um yeah it looks pretty sweet yeah tickets look pretty cheap too so i don't know <laughs> yeah. man i uh maybe next episode i'll be like Book tickets and uh, ready to go out there. So go for it. Yeah. Cactus Con is great, right? Like that's one of those small local conferences I love going to. Um, really vibrant community down there in Phoenix. I know we have listeners that are down there, but a lot of people that I've met over the years are down in that area and the security community is great down there. So if you can go um, or if you just want to participate virtually, go for it as well. Yeah, dude, I think I'm actually going to look at these ticket prices. I think I might actually just be like, I'm going to reach out to Andrew and just be like, hey, I'm thinking about going out there just, you know, just to say hi and stuff. So, yeah, Yeah. cool. I'm glad you said something because I actually didn't um, realize because, you know, normally it's in September. So I didn't I didn't know it was in February. Um, And honestly, like if if you looked out the window here, you would see still we have snow melting and I'm sure it's similarly not warm where you're at no it's not (laughs) no (laughs) yeah well i mean you know it got up into the you know the 30s so i'm feeling pretty good (laughs) Uh, that's awesome into the 30s wow (laughs) to be clear since we have viewers everywhere fahrenheit is talking about Fahrenheit, yes, 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 30s Fahrenheit. I guess it would be pretty rough. If it was 30 Celsius, I'd be a little scared for, uh, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, yeah, climate just, change, uh, yeah, <laughs> this time, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, 
Yeah. One of the first things, though, I wanted to talk about this episode, Ken, um, and I know we kind of left it up in the air last time around, but I did want your feeling on predictions for 2022. And I know I'm putting you on the spot here, um, but oh, yeah, no. yeah, I, I, we, we, we talked about, hey, what do we expect for the new year, right? Um, I know it was late in December. We were trying to sum up what happened, one, but at this point, that's too far in the in the past. So, who cares, right? Outside of Log4j, no one can remember anything, anyways. So, what do you expect for 2022 in AppSec? Well, this is actually on the spot question, but I do have like because it all, yeah, I have like a few things. I think. Um, for one, I think we're for sure going to see more focus on like uh, uh, package ecosystems. I think we're going to see more focus on on whether it's securing that or making it uh, something that's a bit more um, resilient against some of the things which I know we're going to talk about, uh, which is super timely, right? <laughs> yeah. Just had another package related event occur um so i think there's going to be definitely some focus on how do we make that more resilient i think there's more to come in the negative you know um uh, from a negative perspective i think there's been a, a lot of activity around npm but I, I i would imagine this is going to extend into some other package ecosystems so that's like one prediction um i think there's basically more to come there from both a negative and positive uh perspective um, I think the other thing is uh, a focus on a re refocus, at least for, you know, myself, for the team uh, I work with, a, a refocused effort on, um, all right, we've been doing testing a certain way for a long time, and uh, maybe it's time to change sort of the way we do our testing. And uh, I think like one of the articles that you had brought up actually will, will kind of play into that. Um, and I talked about it for like one of those lightning talks that, uh, uh, gosh, what's the, what's the, um, the lightning talks we just did, uh, uh, that was, that was, I don't know. That was, that was sneaks, right? Yeah. Sneaks, yeah, DevSec, yeah. yeah. Well, in that I talked about sort of where I see testing, um, yeah. falling down these days and where you could pick back up. Right. And, um, you're, you've got you've got something we're going to talk about, which is like how different libraries parse uh, URLs. But I think this is like during that talk, I talk a lot about how we're using a, a multitude of libraries and we're using a service oriented architecture uh, in most cases these days. So you've got multiple web apps. Um, and I've talked about it on the podcast, too, where you have communication flowing, uh, requests flowing through multiple services being parsed by different libraries in different ways, context shifting between you know, the front end and the back end, maybe it's a full-fledged service or microservice, whatever it might be. And um, so the data, the data basically uh, not being um, the integrity of what you're looking at, not being really in, having any integrity, if that makes any sense. So it's, it's uh, causing mismatches and authorization. It leads to other flaws. Um, we've got like web cache poisoning. We've got, um, couple other issues we I've talked about. Sorry, I'm a little brain dead today. But um, in any case, I think testing is going to need to change to be a little bit more focused on, all right, what categories of vulnerabilities given what, like, what's the risk of what we're looking at? How is it architected based off of that? How, what's our testing methodology? We should be looking at, you know, a certain category of vulnerabilities a certain way, other categories uh, of vulnerabilities a different way. Um, so I think that that's going to be something that evolves, at least for myself, uh, my team and probably others this uh, next year. That's the second prediction. The um, the third is we were going to see more um, more stuff in general around Web three and um, just the idea of NFTs and whether that's whether that's going to be from a uh, a positive or negative standpoint. I don't know, but I know we're just going to see more of that. Um, which is then going to lead to more interesting research in, in the Web3 sphere. So in any case, those are my predictions. What are your predictions? 
Um, so if you had asked me in November of last year, I wouldn't have said this, but uh, more focus on logging. Woo <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's necessarily a, um, from a positive perspective, though, I'll be honest, because the, the exploit with Log4j and this injection of user content into logs, into the logging mechanism, um, won't necessarily change how developers view logging, right? Um, I, I know documentation is always difficult. I know logging is always difficult. And it's, it's very much based on functionality of an application and actually pushing that application out and, you know, what's actually needed. And usually it's just developer stuff behind the scenes. So I think the focus on logging is going to be very short-lived and probably not in the direction that we really want it to go from a security perspective. So on top of that, uh, and you know, package repositories was going to be my other one, right? Like uh, all of the supply chain attacks, we're not going to see that disappear. That's just going to continue to escalate, just like you were talking about. Um, that was number two on my list, um, just because it is uh, it, it, it's such a problem. Like, I, you know, I've been doing a lot of research into client side uh, malware recently, right? You know, some of the projects that I'm working on. And one of the things that I see application after, after, after application um, is the inclusion of libraries, of multiple libraries that do the same thing. And I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later today, but for a simple example, you know, go load you know, some generic doesn't matter, right? Like, but if you look at the libraries that are loaded from say online banking, you'll typically see two to three different versions of jQuery being loaded on any given application that you use, um, which is so problematic from a developer perspective, but also from a security perspective. I don't think that's been fully exploited. Uh, but I see huge gaps there in this inclusion of multiple different uh, or of the same library in multiple different iterations. Um, that's going to cause collisions. It's going to cause unintended consequences. And that has not been fully explored. I know that happens all the time on the front end, but I, but what we're seeing and this one article we're going to get to, we, we keep hinting at, right. It's talking about it uh, on the back end as well. Anytime that we overload functions, that we're not quite sure what's being loaded into our application, uh, whether that is from package repositories, whether that's from just the package list that's being loaded or dynamically loaded, it's going to cause issues at some point. So uh, that's my number two. Uh, my number three, I, yeah, like I have a hard time with this, right? Um, I think probably the caching stuff is where I'd, I'd go after that um, is the increased exposure of caching vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, the, the complexity of, I know you're talking web three, but the complexity of microservices, and I know it's been out there for a long time, but the complexity of microservices and Nginx and all of the different technologies that we have that exist to actually interact with these web applications um, introduces caching issues. And it's a problem that is so hard to solve from a computer science perspective that there's always going to be security issues that pop up when it comes to caching. So I, I think that's focused. Those would be my three that I'm, I, I'm, I'm looking at from a strict, all right, I want to see where it goes. Uh, but I also, you know, I'm doing some research into it. So. Yeah, I think it's interesting that Going back to your first prediction, that you you um, you might be right with uh, I'm I'm, pe I'm pessimistic, right? Yeah. Getting worse, yeah. Doing it more poorly, Because yeah. I I mean you know you, you you look at what happened with Log4j, right? Um, okay, there's a vulnerability in an open source project, but what is the initial reaction that most people have? It's okay, we either upgrade or we rip that out, right? Right. And so there's going to be this backlash on logging to developers and what technologies they're using. And even though Log4j, like the later iterations are safe now, um, there'll be uh, more focus on those vulnerabilities. And I, yeah, I just, we've seen it happen in the past, right? Where 
we'll stop using it as the pro a proper mechanism, I guess. I, I don't know. I Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, well, I could see two other things happening too. One is more of a reliance on external logging library, uh, external logging services and the libraries they give you to, to do that external logging, which mm -hmm. is, it's like many things, but it's definitely a trade-off and it's not a trade-off I'm always very comfortable with depending on what content uh, you're sending out there, right? Um, performance is one thing, but certainly things accidentally get logged that really shouldn't be. And then when you're doing that to a third-party provider, it, changes the nature of things a little bit, right? Also, I could see it being a thing where like less user input is being stored as a precaution, um, possibly, I, I don't know. But um, that would be another way I could see uh, things getting going sideways or maybe even introducing or overcomplicating how um, content's being sanitized and um, reshaped and parsed from users before being placed into logs and then that being done in a problematic way or, you know, who knows, right? Um, whenever you get into territories where people overreact and have a knee-jerk reaction, things don't uh, tend to go so well. So I, I have a gut feeling that you're, and nothing more that you're probably right uh, when it comes to auditing getting potentially a little worse, um, at least temporarily. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the organizations that were good at auditing, auditing will remain good at auditing because they, you know, they've they've got it figured out. They've got that process. They'll switch over to using, you know, or, or they'll continue to use Log4j or, you know, switch to Logstash or one of the others, and they may pull a new provider. Um, but I really think it hurts that mid to small size business that's already struggling because their a reaction is going to be okay. We're just going to use system.out.printline, right? Instead, and yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then, and then you're you're left with, and uh, yeah, no, I, yeah. Like I said, I mean, I could definitely see um, it going the opposite direction of where we would want it to go. I would hope that there would be a. a, a, a focus on improving auditing. Um, but not necessarily omitting it or switching to worse uh, alternatives. Um, so I guess there's probably room for another prediction, which is given what we've seen, and now that we're talking through it, maybe maybe more of a focus on legacy. Like think about struts and think about log4j. When those mm -hmm. vulnerabilities occurred, those vulnerabilities have been sitting in the code bases for 20 years. Or, Wow. Or it being a yeah. configuration. Yeah. I mean, it's been around for a while, right? But like the other problem though with something like that when you go to fix it is these things are out of date. Like they haven't been updated for a reason. Like these these apps are dependent on something that like they're afraid to upgrade uh, and and deal with the ramifications of things breaking, right? So to me, it's widespread. It's been there for a bit. And to upgrade means serious, serious pain points. Also, you have to know where you need to upgrade, which in larger enterprises is a whole other ball of wax. So I could see I could see more of a focus from the research community on sort of like what you and I might consider legacy technologies, but are very much still in use. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, along those lines, right? Like somebody actually uh, found that um, JNDI, and I don't even know if this was log4j related, right? Um, but JNDI is being used by H2, right? The Java SQL database offering uh, the in-memory one that we've little, always uh, found. Yeah, 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 the one that you can find that you can go and do uh, Google in. dorks for, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, let me see. I'll post that one up here too because that, that was within the last few days, right? Um, it's on the jfrog.com blog. Seth and um, I used to mess around and just like look for... Connected um, people's databases, right? Yeah. It's, it, is it... Yeah. Ethically. <laughs> ethically. But ethically. Yeah, Shodan, uh, Shodan, yes. Shodan will allow you to find uh, examples of things for your research. Well, and this this isn't super surprising either, either now that I think about it, because H2, when you want to connect to a database, allows you to input a JNDI string to get to it, right? Like it's one of the, the accepted schema formats for connecting. So I'm like, wow, that's a, I, like that was just somebody connected the dots there and 
and and figured it out. So, yeah. Mm. Anyway, that, that was a fun one to actually look at and to hear about just because we've seen it before. And But again, it goes back to that legacy tech, exactly what you're saying. I, I mean... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I know I talk about my my early times in you know security, working at a bank, and you know all the old tech that they have in place that they were trying to you know convert to quote unquote open systems as they called them back then, right? Which is yeah. basically anything that wasn't mainframe. Um, but you know that was twenty years ago at this point, and I would be surprised if all of those technologies have been have have kept that upgrade path going. Um, in most large organizations, you know, Fortune 100 companies, Fortune 50 companies, they're very risk adverse. And that includes upgrading to the latest and greatest technology. Um, it's not just, you know, security risk that they're worried about. It's business risk over everything. And, you know, you've got an application in there that's a cash cow that, yeah, you know, you could upgrade it. But if it takes down the business for two days, means you lose millions or billions of dollars, guess what they're going to choose to do? They're going to keep that that sucker in place until they absolutely have to do an upgrade to it. Yeah, plus um, it's just a thing of some companies don't really want to address technical or they, okay, they want to, in theory, address technical debt. But when it comes down to actual, like you said, money, that's time is money, right? Um, you're, you're, whenever we do a job, we're leasing our time for, for money. That's our trade-off. Uh, so you're, you're in that case, you know, you've got developers, they're working on a project, their time is your money. And, uh, you, you maybe you don't want to spend it on technical debt. Instead, you want to like meet some new feature that is going to help, you know, for the next quarter, raise your, your shares, you know, or whatever thing like you, you know, businesses have different things they prioritize in terms of like future facing new features, new services, whatever, but very rarely is it, let's take a step back and go address technical debt. I'll say I've been lucky at GitHub. They have definitely taken whole months off to, uh, not months off, but months to focus on tech addressing technical debt. But that's like a rare, that's a rare thing. Most, most companies don't do that. They don't take huge swaths of time out to address technical debt. No. Yeah. Which they, is what they, this they, is, right? Yep. Yep. I, I mean, I always go back to, you know, penetration testers or just poor QA testers, right? And I mean, it's tongue in cheek, but it's it, it's true from a business perspective that the the vulnerabilities that we find are really just bugs. They're, they're, they're security bugs, yes, and they can have very specific implications to the business and to security. Um, but from a business risk perspective, it gets tied in with everything else that's being done. And, and to your point, right? Like it may or may not get solved just based on the business appetite to deal with technical debt. Um, and I mean, I deal with this on a daily basis when we're proposing assessments to clients um, because I, I'm very aware of how much it costs for us to do an assessment and certain organizations will balk very quickly if I come in and say, hey, you know, you know, that two million lines of code that you want us to look at, that's going to take me three months to do. And it's going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I know that they're like the business size is that the appetite for that sort of expenditure is just not there, even though it could find vulnerabilities and we could, you know, we could eliminate risks for them or at least point them out to be solved it's still not within their wheelhouse or not within their appetite to actually spend that much to secure and and i get it right like having been on the business side i get it i i know that there's not yeah you, you can't you can't spend a hundred dollars to secure a dollar asset right that's yeah so there yeah. there is a certain level of risk that we live with. And I think that's what most even consumers don't understand about these security risks that are out there. Um, most sites that you go to, they have vulnerabilities, right? Uh, I, I wouldn't even argue most sites, any site that you go to has vulnerabilities that they've accepted as the risk of doing business. Yeah, for sure. That's the, that's always the, uh, the tough thing. Um, especially when, 
when you're when you're when you're first coming in, when you're like less experienced that's a hard thing to reconcile actually in that book that's over my left shoulder tribe of hackers i talk about that in the book i'm like sometimes you have to realize it just comes down to straight up that's the business decision and you have to learn to accept it um change the things you can accept the things you can't move forward in life and uh career and that's an unfortunate yeah unfortunate yeah. reality that we all deal with although i do want to get to this don't mix url parsers article because the more okay. i read it by the way since you shared it with me the more i'm like oh man this is exactly like this is exactly what i was talking about in those predictions and then in that talk for Again, I think it was yeah. DevSecCon or something like that. DevSecCon talk. Right. Yeah. Yep. yep. This is this is okay. Let's just get okay. in. I'm going to post it here okay. and then okay. put it in general as well. Um, of absolute absec. But yeah, do you want to give people a brief summary on this one? But man, I'm excited to talk about this. Um. Uh, so this is so Daniel. I know I've run into his blog a couple of times in the past, right? Um. But uh, he does analysis on his adventures of URL parsers, parsers and their differences. And I think that's where it started, right? Um, is he started to look at the different URL parsers that are out there, how they actually parse URLs and, you know, what the, you know, what the differences in them are and then why you shouldn't be using multiple different libraries to parse URLs in the same application, right? Um, and, and it all goes back to security principles and redirects and um, just the way that you understand how a library works, popping in one library for another one or using something like curl on the back end as opposed to, um, you know, just a get or, a, you know, URL.schema. I can't even remember the different libraries well, he looks at right now, but well, and I, it can cause problems. Real yeah. Real briefly, you said inside of the same application, but that was my point. All that 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 was my point is that we're not we're not doing this parsing in just one application. This is the point of what you're. I mean, or sorry, this this, this is what they discuss. But that is my point is that the parsing doesn't parsing doesn't occur in just one place. It could happen in four places by the time it reaches like the wherever the sink is, right? The last place that's going to be parsed and then interacted with. But anyway, sorry. So just to set the tone, yes. there's the, there's the, the, yeah, don't use multiple libraries for parsing in the same app, but also like be, be very wary if you're using different libraries with multiple applications. But anyways, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that as the sum up on the article, right? My yeah. URL isn't your URL. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think you're absolutely right. Like, and I, you know, to, to be completely honest with you, Ken, like I, I skimmed this article and thought, wow, this is great. Um, but I haven't dug into it probably even as much as you have so far. Right. Mm. Um, it's super interesting. I mean, I want to read this book, the uh, exploiting URL parsers, the good, bad and inconsistent, um, which actually let me find the link to that. I, yeah, this is, I'm fast. I'm immediately fascinated in all of this because Man, this is like this is what I've been trying to say. There's 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 an increasing amount of confusion between apps uh, when you get into a service oriented architecture, which is just about everything. Even if you're not, a, even if you don't think you're service oriented, uh, you probably are. Like if you if you even if you just like I don't know, you use the most basic Elastic Beanstalk functionality, we'll say on AWS. Well, now you've got like probably a front end load balancer to handle your traffic. Maybe that's doing some application layer, layer stuff. You've got some different services you're connecting to very likely inside of AWS. If your app is doing anything with a database or doing anything with like an in-memory database, or if it's doing anything with anything other than just like rendering static content, which in that case is probably you're not using AWS, right? You're probably using something much simpler than that. Nobody wants to run their own servers like for something super static and simple. So even when you think that it's not, Anyways, even when you think you're not a service-oriented architecture, you might be. So, um, so this is only this this is only uh, growing in in like this direction for for architecture. But then we're seeing like, yeah, for instance, they they reference Orange Size, uh, a new era of SSRF. And if you've seen 
this podcast, you know, you've seen Seth and I talk about the uh, orange size, like four chained vulnerabilities on GitHub, but it came down to like, it usually comes down to anyways, like parsing, right? You think URL parsing is like one of the hardest things to get right. It really is. It's, it's actually terribly hard, um, depending on what you're trying to do, of course. But, um, and then, and then man, I, I'm not prepared for the depth I want to go into with this, but um, <laughs> it, it ranges from everything with confusion of what a URI versus a URL, URL is, right? URI being uh, a resource uh, that could be an SMTP server. It could be F FTP. The protocols and schemas range wildly there so that the standards for parsing are not what you think you know if you if you're like well i'm going to parse this url i'm going to get a host i'm going to path the schema blah 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 that should be good and i'm going to put them maybe back together and form uh, a url great but then you start getting to weird territories where it's like even if you're doing just url parsing correctly there's other things that can go wrong you yeah for example i think one of the things orange Sai had shown was using like hex instead of just like a, a domain name or IP, use something like hex, I think. Um, and but but it was interpreted as like a valid uh, location for a server. And sure enough, like SSRF, right? The request goes through with user supplied input. Um, we've seen all kinds of like weird ways to get around strict parsing just because the, the server, the live the server itself, as well as the libraries that it's using are doing things in unexpected ways. And um, I just think this problem is going to keep continuing to grow out of control if we don't rein, rein certain things in. Um, yeah. One, one thing I've talked about uh, recently internally is, is uh, having, having a front end that does, you know, we've, we've, we know exactly like how, and I'm trying to keep it abstract enough to not like give specifics away, but imagine like you could parse the data using known good uh, libraries, using known good uh, functions within those libraries. And so we repeatable data that we can feel pretty confident about. And then just sort of rehashing that, giving it some integrity, having integrity checks on that data, and then passing that around um, throughout your service-oriented architecture. Uh, that's one way that I see maybe uh, getting ahead of something like this, but this isn't the only problem that we have, right? That's just SSRF and URL parsing. There are so many other libraries that we're using that can cause just the, the confusion itself can lead to security vulnerabilities, which is like in the first few paragraphs they talk. Uh, yeah, it says like, uh, if you part, I'm going to just verbatim, if you parse a URL with, par and I'm going to, you can just take URL out of the picture and just imagine data, right? If you parse a URL with parser A and make conclusions about the URL based on that and then pass the exact same URL to parser B and it draws different conclusions and properties from that, it opens up not only for strange behaviors, but in some cases for downright security vulnerabilities. And that is my prediction for this year. We're going to see more of that because you can, like I said, replace URL with data and you can say like, yeah, system A drawing conclusions from data versus system B drawing conclusions from that data and then both of them trying to make some logic related decisions on that man personally speaking i've i've had to stay up nights because of this this type of behavior so anyways whatever uh i could go on on and on and on but i need to read this book man this looks really really cool yeah i mean i i, I pulled it up i posted it there too that you know, the actual upload um the paper from you know all those different guys uh, that you know it was interesting there like five different categories of inconsistencies that they found, but all of the different parsing libraries that they looked at, right? Um, and these are the guys. It looks like they're from Sneak, but it's also the research from Daniel, who is the creative creator of Curl, right? That's that's where it actually started from. Um, but yeah, like URL lib, URL lib three. I mean, you look at all the different parsing libraries that are just available within Python or Java, and and then start to think about the parsing that happens in different applications, like whether it's from, you know, Chrome, like how it does parsing versus, you know, Safari or web application or mobile applications when they parse something. And you can see where this would, this just, it expounds as you start to think about the differences that are associated with each of those libraries. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, they even anyway. show like log for J. Um, man, this is such oh dude, I want to read this whole PDF. Like I'm dying to read yeah. this PDF. This is so cool. But like they even talk about some of the uh, remedies for J and DI not working because of uh, weird weird parsing issues. Um, so soon after the fix, a bypass for for that uh, was found and it allowed remote JNDI lookup and allowed the board to be exploited to get our RCE again because of parsing mismatches. Like this is this is what I'm talking about, man. This is this is only getting harder for us. And and going back to the testing part of that, my point with the testing was that like. I see two primary ways that are the most efficient to detect this stuff until we have like a large data set of what libraries have, what behavior um, static out in my mind is the least efficient way. That sounds probably for coming from you and I, yeah. you know, that does not sound like something I would normally say, but absolutely. I think that's the case here. So unit testing, I think is probably one way to, but when I say unit testing, I mean, unit testing with like a fuzzing, you know, a real yeah. fuzzing sort of approach there, but also like dynamic testing uh, and fuzzing in that way. Those are the only ways I see some of these things being quickly and efficiently detected. I don't think that static, like I said, until we have a larger data set of like known, known oddities with libraries and the way they handle and exchange data, it's going to be, it's going to be runtime testing, which is basically all I'm saying with unit testing and dynamic analysis, just runtime testing fuzzing really mm -hmm. in the runtime well and i mean that goes back to the i man, yeah yeah all you know old things are new again right i like, know i know <laughs> i know i thought it i thought it before you said it because <laughs> I, I i mean i talked I, I talked about this what 2014 2015 with sputter right like actually like you know the fuzzing ability and dynamic testing um, like we really like digging into source code, but we can only go so far. Right. And I'm very limited. Like we're very limited from a static analysis perspective on what we look at. It's very custom to the application, to the source, source code base. So I'm not getting into these difference differences with URL schemas. Right. I, like I, unless I know there's a vulnerability, like that first article we looked at, I know they dived into JNDI as well there. Um, but yeah, it's just, I, I don't know, man. Like, it, you know, it, I would hope that people are doing that sort of fuzzing. And I know, you know, me and Stefan especially have talked about it quite a bit. Um, and it's just a, I, I'm with you, right? Like, I, I don't think that we, we catch these from a static perspective, I guess is where I'm going with that. I just, uh, yeah, I think it'd be too, too, I mean, one thing you could find with st static analysis is like, you could get a collection of the libraries that are being used and then say, well, service A versus service B versus service C. But that's just, that's just an indicator of a potential smell. It doesn't mean anything for like actual detection. I just, going back to like what, um, when we had James Kettle on the podcast and I encourage anybody listening to go check that episode out, James has uh, some pretty good thoughts there, but when he talked about like, Hey, I just modified in my, my payload and tested, you know, thousands of sites in 15 minutes using my, my framework. Like, dude, I can't do that with static analysis. I can't like make test an assumption that quickly on thousands of sites with, with, uh, you know, static analysis. So anyways, my, yeah, like I definitely see, I definitely see testing getting into this weird thing now where it's like you really do need to 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 pare down on what things you're going to test for using what methodology. So it's just I think for us, it's getting more complicated is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, this goes back to why we, we built out the methodology for secure code review. Right. Was having this like prioritized list of items that we can look at for source code. But I feel like we get away from that when we're do, doing dynamic testing, right? I know we do prioritization there, but there's a lot of, hey, uh, I mean, and I know there's a lot of client expectations when I talk to them about like what a, you know, an application, a dynamic application security assessment is that they assume that we're looking at every single endpoint that we're looking at, you know, we're running all of these fuzz tests. And we definitely do that from an automated perspective when we're using something like burp, 
but that doesn't mean that we necessarily go to the level like we're always time constrained. We're always going to be time constrained when it when it comes to those assessments. We're never going to be able to get full coverage, which is why I ask the question, what is most important to you? Right. Um, because that's where I want to spend my time as like as a tester coming into it. And I think that's, you know, it would behoove us to actually document that process as well, Ken. You know, yeah. we've done it for secure code review, but it may be worth it to do it for dynamic assessments and start pulling out some of these fuzz tools and documenting, hey, guess what? This one works really well if we were looking at a, you know, a, an API that is using some strange nginx configuration and we're going to actually fuzz that because we can do that fairly easily and that's where what's most important as opposed to hey we're looking for sql injection everywhere and it's a modern framework so it's probably not the most important thing that we need to focus on right here right so yeah 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 the, yeah the more i read this this article the more i'm like yes 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 because they're talking about oh my gosh when you get down to like the blacklisted url section where they're they're showing code examples of like checking against blacklisted urls and if it's you know in that array of blacklisted urls and it doesn't you know get an exception otherwise you proceed forward and then they talk about how when the data is put back together things get appended and then there's a bypass for that check because it's looking for local host. It's not looking for HTTP local host, but because of the parsing and HTTP being added back in. I mean, this thing is just, this is what I've seen. Like this is what you've seen like over and over again in our career, URL parsing is probably one of the hardest things to get right at times, depending on what you're doing with the data, of course. I mean, that, that depends on what kind of checks for sure. I think it's cool too. They did know they did, uh, they did, so they, they did know they did the browsers, uh, they did Ruby, um, did laugh. They, they, they did Perl as well. They checked Perl <laughs> as well. So that was pretty, uh, kind of funny to me. Hey, but anyways, dude, like this yeah. is, this is a crazy good read. It's 33 pages. It's not that long. Um, I feel like I've skimmed most of it anyways. Um, yeah, just we'll dig into it and, and maybe reprise it next week, right? Like yeah. the stuff that we've identified, because that's a, um, it's very, I, the, the fact that they use the log for shell vulnerability right at the beginning to actually dig into it shows why it's such an issue. Um, so it's very kind of prescient or how, however you want to say it. It's very relevant right now to what's going on in the industry. So take a look at it when you get some time. Do you want to talk about uh, shifting gears? Do you want to talk about the uh, the npm thing? Or oh yes, we should. We should. <laughs> I, I, I we did have that comment asking about what should one know before getting into appsec. Um, oh, that's a that's yeah. a longer conversation. Um, uh, so I'm actually putting yeah. together. I have a note literally right in front of me, right there on my uh, my desk to. I'm working on a uh, path to mastery for AppSec for our own um, sort of, uh, there's folks that are interested in just getting basically for work. There's some folks that are interested in, you know, the, the path to like, what it, what is the path in AppSec? And I thought a lot about the fact that I, you know, it's, it's not really somewhere I found, uh, it's not something I found documented that necessarily follows like the, I, that I agree with. I want to make something personally that I think uh, will get you to that that path to mastery. And so maybe um, I take what what I do for work and then work with you, Seth, to create. Yeah, a, let's uh, post it. We'll post a page on absoluteappsec.com. Let there stand. Maybe we'll do an episode on it as well when we do it at that same time, because it's a question that we get quite often. Um, right. I know I, there's OWASP and you know all that sort of stuff. Um, that's available oasp.org, but it doesn't necessarily have that, that, that I kind of lined out. Um, these are the things that we expect someone to know when they're getting into AppSec. I think that's where Ken, you're going. And, yeah. you know, I, I feel like I, you know, there wasn't a path when I came into it. So I stumbled into it. Um, so yeah, it'll be on absoluteappsec.com when we get it all the way, all the way solidified. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah. And we'll tweet. Yeah, it and we'll it. tweet it. We'll put it on our absolute appsec Slack. Like we, we'll, we'll definitely. You'll, you'll, you'll just keep an eye on any of the ways that you get updated uh, 
for absolute AppSec stuff, you'll see it for sure. Cause this is a, this is not, this has been a, a, something that's come up qu quite a bit uh, as a question. Um, oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, yeah. It's just sort of like, and I've gone back and forth on certain aspects of it um, for sure. Like, uh, and I'm, I'm sure we'll argue about it, right? I'm certain sure aspects, we'll right? You know, just based on yeah. where we're at and where you're at in your career, it kind of differs. But the the base level level is definitely there. Um, and I know, like, I get asked this all the time, just personally, and I know you do too, Ken. Right? Yeah. As you're you know going around talking to uh, college students and others that are interested in the fields. Yeah, it'd be a good resource to have. So, and we thanks for the more. Yeah, and we do need more. Uh, we do need more people in this field. It's um, yep. Everything we do is powered by software these days, and there's not as many of us as uh, nearly enough of us for for the need that's out there. Um, as you can see by uh, Seth and I's faces, we're getting older. <laughs> no offense, Seth. But, uh, you know, we're getting older and I think it's it's something I think a lot about is like the, the you know, the next the next generation, we'll say, of, of folks coming up. So, yeah. Um, OK, yeah. So let's talk about let's see, which one did we want to jump into here? <laughs> now I forgot again. So for this and I was going to say for this NPM thing, I have to I have oh, to NPM, put out a couple yes. things for one. There are going to be some things I can't talk about because I was literally on the call with the folks that are dealing with this um, from NPM side this morning. So uh, there will be things I know that I have to shy away from saying. Um, also, the little disclaimer, yes, I work for GitHub. They own NPM. Well, technically, I work for I work for GitHub, who is owned by Microsoft, who also owns NPM. So but anyways, um, so, yeah, uh, I have to put that little disclaimer out there. So, yeah, there will be some things that are. So everything that I talk about is my personal opinion. It's not going to be from a work-related perspective. Um, yeah, that's that's those are kind of the setting that up. But if you want to go into like, do you want to like tell people a little bit about, you know, what happened? Yeah. So basically, I just posted the article. Um, I, I mean, I, I think there's multiples that talk about it, but basically, a a, a developer who um, produces both like a couple different NPM, popular NPM libraries, decided that he wasn't getting paid enough and pushed out a version that did weird stuff. Like, and you know, it, like it's still, it, it, the, the library still worked, but it started to, you know, started to print out gibberish messages to the console um, and it, Let's see. I mean, it was the colors and faker uh, projects that are used by millions of, uh, you know, millions of projects are, are, are dependent upon these. Right. Um, and if you go look at that article, you'll see that, you know, it does. Um, there's just a mischievous commit. Right. It wasn't anything super malicious, um, but it did, you know, it did introduce an infinite loop. Right? It almost felt a lot like the hacktivism stuff that we saw years ago where people would take over, um, they would deface a website, um, you know, for whatever purpose that they had behind it. Um, but it, in this case, it was just, you know, they, they, they bumped the version. So it was automatically pulled by all the different repositories and rebuilt in the CICD pipelines. And then, you know, yeah, basically it goes back to him, you know, last year or a year and a half ago posting about how he shouldn't necessarily, yeah, like he wasn't going to support big companies anymore, right, with his open source work. And um, like he wanted to be paid is really what it boiled down to. Uh, so I don't know, from, from, a, from a strict like security perspective, uh, people that weren't pinned to specific versions of colors and faker.js were seeing their CICD pipelines basically blow up and enter that infinite loop. And then all these console messages that were being spammed, spammed over and over to the console, you know, filling up logs, doing other kind of malicious things, even though the applications continued to work. So in response um, since the projects were hosted at GitHub and NPM is a portion of Microsoft, they rolled back the versions uh, 
to introduce, to reintroduce stability on those projects, and they suspended that developer's accounts. Um, so there's been quite a bit of backlash and questioning on whether or not that response was warranted, right? Uh, we all trust GitHub. I saw some responses in like Reddit posts and other things that were, oh man, we should never use like, oh, you know, commercial utilities to trust our open source code with, right? Like there's all these hot takes that people have about, um, about the situation and what's actually happened. Um, what I always go back to is, yes, but he intentionally abused his user's trust in those applications, right? After running this library for years and years in a specific manner and decided, hey, now is the time that I'm going to quote unquote cash in, but almost blackmail my users into doing something for me, right? Um, and once you open source a project, that code is no longer yours, right? Um, th and this is where I have like, I, I don't know if it's I'm walking a fine line here or if it's just my own you know, personal preference or personal opinions. So take it with a grain of salt. But my understanding with open source and how it actually is structured from a legal perspective is once you open source it, once you apply that GPL or that um, Apache 2 license to your code base, it is technically owned by the community and it's no longer your personal private repository or your personal uh, language that you can do whatever you want with. It doesn't mean that you can't, you don't still have a version that you can create other instances with and stop supporting, but the code that you've put out there is owned by the community and wherever you store it, wherever you push it into those repositories, they're going to have consequences and they're going to have a say about what happens with that code. So I know I wandered around that, Ken, a fair bit, but uh, you know, from a summary perspective, like what is it that you view as actually as have happened? Yeah. Um, and first of all, like I, I just agree with everything you've said. Um, and even even if uh, even if you own the access to it, you've written it, it's yours. Um, you have to realize that the community, it's you've open sourced it. People can have access to it. They can also also have access to your updates if your updates are nefarious like this. You really open source does run on something you said really resonated with me. Open source is really about trust, right? And, and breaking that trust. Um, can have serious long-term consequences. You know, I hope this is the only person that does this. I hope this isn't a trend that continues for sure. Um, and again, I just want to reiterate, these are my personal opinions. Um, I won't get into like anything about their accounts or things being locked or all the, the, the claims that have been made online. Um, what I will say is that, you know, for a long time, um, I live in D I live near DC, right? So I I've, had my fair share of exchanges with the government and with uh, various teams working for the government, teams working for large financials, heavily regulated industries. Just so there's a lot of that, right? Whether it's banks, whether it's the government, there's a lot of that around here. Um, I can tell you that it has been a long road for a lot of people to get these institutions to trust open source enough to allow them to write applications that are built on the open source community uh, it's been a, a long struggle. One of the, the biggest, um, you know, draws to this is that you have a huge collection of tools that can do things um, sometimes better than you can uh, if you were to write it yourself. There's like lots of, I could just, I don't want to go into all of them, but there's a lot of pros, uh, a lot of good reasons to use open source, even if you work for a large institution who could, you know, in theory, hire great developers and um, write, you know, these libraries themselves. So that battle, you know, has been waged and people, uh, ultimately seem to have gotten these institutions to trust, uh, open source to a degree. Um, and there's obviously tools like, what is it, uh, like black duck and sneak and stuff like that to like, you know, check these libraries for, uh, known security vulnerabilities. Um, certainly 
GitHub's got some tools for that too. Uh, so, you know, but it's still at the end of the day, a lot of it's uh, based off of trust. So if people go um, breaking that trust, they're going to undo a lot of hard work by a lot of people. So that's the first thing. Um, second thing is I, I think this person truly thought, you know, this was going to be some sort of movement against institutions. But do you think that the CEOs who are sitting on yachts uh, give two shits about um your update to this library. No, it's the people that you would be sitting next to at a conference that you'd be working with, with out of, out of, out of a cafe. It's the people that you would imagine if you had to stand in a room with all the people that you negatively impacted from your decision to do this, what would you think then if they all had, if they were all sitting right in front of you, how would that feel? Right. When you put some, this is people that, that, that were hurt by this. This wasn't some company or some institution. This was a lot of people hurt by this. Um, and if people continue to, to, to go down that route, there's going to be a lot of undoing in the open source community, uh, a lot of undoing of goodwill in the open source community. So I think what I'm trying to say is this was a very immature action, in my opinion. Um, I, I can't imagine what was going through this person's mind. Uh, I think who they intended to hurt, if that's truly the reason that this was done, is not hurt at all by this. Um, and I think uh the the collateral damage are the only people that are actually hurt by this um mm -hmm. which makes them not collateral damage it makes them the target so anyways uh if you can't tell i'm a, frankly a little perturbed about the whole thing but uh yeah let's hope that's not a trend that continues yeah i i don't know i i i go back to the days of I, I, I'm I, like, I date myself pretty quick, right? Like when I came into the industry and how open source was viewed and exactly what you're saying, right? Like I remember going to, um, you know, my first programming job and most of the frameworks that we used were not open source frameworks and how long it took to develop software internal to an app, into, internal to an organization when you did not have access to a library as extensive as what's available in NPM or even Java libraries nowadays, like that open source software makes the internet work. So the second that we start to screw around with that base and we break the trust that users have with that software, things go and go very poorly. And this was always my problem when I went and saw like, uh, Richard Stallman speak, right? Like years ago, like he did like this huge, uh, you know, I'm, I'm touring all across the, um, yeah, all across the country, all across the world, talking about new GNU herd and how, you know, we shouldn't be using, you know, Unix utilities, but I should get paid for using the, the software that I'm developing and then was really down on Linux because of how it came about. And it was, it was very hard to get organizations to take his software and his utility seriously because of how he presented himself and how rigid he was in his understanding of his, what software was and how it was to be put out. Right. Um, like, so it, you know, it, and it came down to even things like, uh, bagging on the local computer club for giving away books that um, a publisher had sent or they had bought at a bookstore to give away as prizes because the books weren't open source or the, you know, it wasn't free to give this language or give this out and it was owned by someone else. Um, yeah. And I just am, I, part of me is really disappointed with how, how it went down. Right. Like, but mainly because of the decisions that were made up front and the trust that is broken. And, and then looking at the guys that are running those dev ops pipelines and exactly what you're saying. Okay. How much work did they have to put in to actually, you know, actually perform this. And then I'm, I'm glad that NPM st stepped up and rolled back that version because of, uh, you know, Hey, we're, we're going to take a step back. We're going to give you back what was stable and then we can figure out what's going on from here. Yeah. 
I mean, yes, exactly. Like, yes, you can roll back, but it's going to require some work. It's not, um, yeah, just trust is broken in that case. And we we were talking out of bound on Slack, uh, (laughs) leisure shoot suit, Larry, I still love the the handle, but Larry was talking about, um, it being difficult to get access to libraries that, you know, now you can just go to GitHub and find, or Bitbucket or wherever you can find, um, could find libraries that uh, on the on the internet, open source libraries that do things that you want, and then yeah, and that's the thing is, you you have to remember that in order for us to operate, and I think everybody agrees that it's a good thing. I think I think we if we can all mutually agree that it's a good thing that we're more agile in development, and not just in development, but in our infrastructure, that DevOps is a good thing, that agile is a good thing. Um, if we can all agree upon that, then we also have to agree that there's no way you can operate. Uh, you can't operate in those environments uh, or operate in that way without having access to the open source ecosystem. It's just too difficult and too slow and too cost prohibitive and time prohibitive to operate quickly uh, and build cool things and see technology uh, the speed at which technology is evolving. Um, if you have to go through procurement and as Larry said, pay through the nose and go through some significant process just to get access to a library that does something. Um, or alternatively spend massive amounts of time on development to do something that's, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to like say the word trivial because that's not, uh, I don't think any open source code is necessarily, I'm not trying to say it's trivial, but I'm saying some of these things are not necessary. There, there's things you want in your application, but you know, it, it would be like the, the cost to develop them versus their usefulness, uh, a bit of a trade-off there. Right. So, um, well, I, I guess I'm, and- I'm just trying to say like, if we can all agree that DevOps is a good thing and moving quickly is a good thing and, and, and a good thing from a security perspective, which I highly, I would highly argue that's the case, then yeah, we, we have to trust open source maintainers to not go rogue and pull stunts like this. Yep. Well, that, like I, I always go back to, um, Yeah. If, if you want to know what it was like 20 some odd years ago to develop software, go pull down like the, the core Microsoft windows SDK and try to develop an application without using any, any third party libraries or only paid third party libraries. Cause that was the situation that we were in years ago. Um, you know, before Linux, before Mozilla, before, you know, all of these, all of these open source, utilities and tools came about um you had to build it yourself and like from a security perspective i would be right there with you because i think i mean we just know how poorly we do with custom software as it is on a day-to-day basis even when we're using secure frameworks you know take that and multiply it by a hundred thousand times when you have to do you have to build your own sql orm right Oh yeah. God, could you imagine? And and also like, yeah. where do you, <laughs> because there's another argument for open source. Like you, like you said, it's, it's, it's that there are many eyes on, on one thing and like an ORM, we, we can, we can feel like people have the ability from all over the world to look at an ORM and say, Oh, there's, there's SQL injection there. Here's my PR to help fix, uh, or help mitigate that, that vulnerability. Um, if it's a closed source uh, ORM, you have the eyes of whoever is willing to look at it. And yeah, it's just, I, I mean, we don't need to rehash it forever, but like, yeah, there's so many good arguments for open source when it comes to security. It's like, don't, don't, don't ruin that ecosystem. But anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I have, I have other knowledge too, that makes me even more annoyed, but I just can't share it. So anyways, we'll say that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to watch and see what happens in yeah. that space. Um, just what the response is going to be, both from the open source maintainers and from, you know, the, the package repositories as well. Like how they how they watch for malicious packages, right? Like it's not necessarily just malicious, I guess, but also, um, yeah, just 
hacktivism like it it happens all across the board so yeah anyway so we've been going for over an hour starting out the year with a bang (laughs) (laughs) it's not all gloom Um, and doom folks we're excited for this new year no we are we we definitely are um watch for a post we're going to finish up our laravel uh, uh secure code review um Ken and I just need to sit down and figure out a night that works for us so we can we can push that out. It'll probably be within the next week or so. And just, just so you know, yeah. usually Wednesday nights are good for me. Okay. Yep. Yep. And actually they are for me too. So maybe we'll do it tomorrow night. Watch our uh, watch Twitter, watch the Slack channel, join the conversation. Um, I'll check the website, make sure that the Slack channel invite still works. I'm pretty sure it does. Uh, but if it doesn't, let us know. Reach out on Twitter and we will update. And otherwise, you know, thanks for coming back and spending yet another episode with us in another year. We're excited to to get involved. We have some new swag on its way. And so if you would like some of that, uh, start interacting and we will we'll send it along. So, thanks, y'all. Anyway. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. We'll see everybody at least at the very least next week. Yeah, very, very. Oh, we have a guest for next week, too. So I'll. I'll put some more information in Slack for that, but we have a guest for next week that, uh, yeah, it should be interesting. So cool. Sweet. All right. All right. Thank you. Ciao. Bye.